you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Kester Smith. Uh, I am a pastor at Christ Church Anglican here in Austin uh, and have also been a part of Emmanuel Anglican since before it was called Emmanuel Anglican. And years ago, before I was an Anglican at all, my wife and I were church planters here in Austin. And I worked bivocationally at Book People at the corner of 6th and Lamar. And one of the things, this may not surprise you, but book people, especially the employees at book people, love to talk about books. And so anytime we're not helping someone find a book, we're having conversations with each other about books. And my friend Chris and I were both fans of a writer named Jorge Borges. He writes these really strange and magical and mystical short stories. And one day we didn't have anything to do and all the books had been shelved and there were no customers to help and Chris and I were at the information desk together and he said, what's your favorite sentence that Borges ever wrote? And I said, well, Chris, I think you might be a bigger fan of Borges than I am. I don't have a favorite sentence that Borges ever wrote. And he said, I do. And I don't only think it's the most beautiful sentence he ever wrote, I think it's the most beautiful sentence ever written. I said, lay it on me, man. And he said, it's at the beginning of one of his short stories. He writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I thought, I am either about to blow his mind or ruin his day. I said, Chris, Borges didn't write that sentence. And he said, no, he did. I can show you the story. I said, I believe it's at the beginning of the story. I'm just telling you he borrowed it. I said, that's the beginning of the Gospel of John. And Chris, who liked me but was disappointed in the fact that I was a Christian, he was a pretty adamant atheist, his face sort of fell and he went, I don't think so. I said, I'm pretty sure. I can find it if you want. And so I grabbed a Bible off the shelf and showed him the opening of the Gospel of John. And he had this look on his face, sort of confusion, maybe disappointment. And he said, but it's the most beautiful sentence ever written. And he said it as if that sentence had not only altered that story and elevated it somehow, Somehow that sentence was so beautiful, it had altered and elevated every story he had ever read since. He said it as if that sentence had altered and elevated his own story. And now he didn't know what to do. When I was in seminary years back, one of the courses that I took was on Islamic Christian relations in the Middle East, particularly as Islam was beginning. And one of the things we did in the class was study names for God within Islam. And it was really beautiful. There are a lot of names for God, official names for God within the Islamic faith. And one of the names that jumped out at me was Al-Haq. 
which is often translated the true or the truth. The way we might say that Christ is the way, the truth, and life. But one imam commenting on al-Haq said, if you really want to understand what al-Haq means, it might be better translated, the real. God, the real. And I have to tell you, ever since then, I have been unable to shake that idea of God. I think about it every day since. Because I had spent too much of my life believing that God was true and that the gospel was true, but true in a way that meant assenting to facts that were true. And when I first began church planting and for too much of my ministry, I think I still understood the truth of the gospel to be the facts of the gospel and evangelism to be convincing people to assent to those facts, to accept those facts, to believe and confess those facts. What I had lost sight of at some point, because I believe I had this in my early years, was that the true that God is, the capital T true that God is, is real. Capital R, real. A real that makes and shapes and shakes and undoes and remakes reality. That God is capital R, real, in the same way that we say that God is capital L, love. Not that we define God by what love is. We define love by who God is. And we define what is real by who God is. Because God is Al-Haq, capital R, real. When my son Harry, who's playing piano for us tonight, when he was eight or nine years old, we were taking a walk through our neighborhood one day after school. And he was talking to me about things he had learned in science class. And specifically about photosynthesis and how photosynthesis worked. And we're looking at these trees and he's explaining about how carbon dioxide gets taken in and oxygen is produced. And then he stopped and looked up at this tree and said a thing I will never forget as long as I live. He said, Dad... God could have just made it work, but he also made it beautiful. God could have made an oxygen-producing machine, and it would have been true. But it wouldn't have been real. To make something real, to make it capital T true, means it has to be capital B beautiful. Not pretty. There's all sorts of pretty shiny things that pretend to be real, but beautiful in a way that it can be ugly and still be beautiful. It can be painful and still be beautiful. That is how we know when a thing that is true is also real. God is making reality, and he does it in a way that is both true and beautiful. In fact, that cannot separate what is true from what is beautiful. It happens right from the beginning. God is so real 
all he has to do is speak a word and a reality becomes. In the beginning, God says, light. And there is light. And this is what God continues to do, making flora and fauna, plants and animals, sun and moon and stars, land and sky and sea. The God who is real is so real, he makes reality, he wills it. And not only that, but he makes us, makes us real. Perhaps the most real creature ever created because we are made in the image of the one who is real. And he invites us into this reality, invites us to caretake, calls us to care for the reality he has made. God who is real makes us real and offers us nothing except what is real. And then Satan tempts us to take what is false and fleeting, to taste of unreality, and to begin to become unreal. And we do. We begin to be undone. And we begin to participate in Satan's work of unmaking reality. Not only that, but we begin to believe the lie that unreality is as real as reality. That sin and darkness and death are as real as love and light and life. But sin and darkness and death are only an absence of what is real. They are unreal. They are a rejection and denial of what is real. The story of God and the people of God throughout the Bible might be understood as God's ongoing invitation into reality, into the God who is real, into the love that is real. The story of the fall and everything after is a story of being unmade, of being unreal. The story of sin, of violence, of pride and power, of lust and greed. This is a story of people being made unreal by embracing what is not real. And one might say that to be human is to be real and to be real is to be the person that God has created and called us to be. The God who is capital R real, the God who is capital L love, creates us for one purpose, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And when we begin to do not that, we begin to become inhuman. We begin to become unreal. The story of God and the people of God throughout the Bible is a story of God trying to call us back to reality. It's a story of God who is love trying to call us back to love. And the story that begins in Genesis 1 begins again in John 1. It is the story of the remaking of reality. It is the story of God's reality making his reality-making word taking on flesh and stepping into this unreality we have made in order to remake it. It is the story of a God whose love was so great, so good, 
so real that he sent himself his word, his son, in order that we might believe in him and be saved. It is the story of how we might be made human again, beautiful again, real again. This word made flesh, Jesus Christ, is such a beautiful word that he not only shapes the most beautiful sentence ever written, but he changes every sentence in every story. And he keeps his story, this story of the God so real, so loved that he alters all reality, it shows up in our stories again and again. It's the Velveteen Rabbit. It's Pinocchio. Love makes me a real boy. These are stories of how the unreal is made real by love. His story is at the heart of one of my favorite stories, The Lord of the Rings. Even if his name is never mentioned, he's there all through it. It is a story of the unmaking of a ring that would make the world unreal. And the everyday hobbits and humans and elves and dwarves who fight in hope of a new reality. My favorite character in The Lord of the Rings and in all of fiction is a hobbit named Sam Gamble. Sam is not particular, particularly heroic. He isn't the smartest or the strongest, but he is fiercely committed to his friends and to this story. He is a lover of words and a lover of stories because of the way they point to this greater story, this better reality. And Sam has two moments in particular in the Lord of the Rings story that make him my favorite fictional character. The first comes when Sam's friend Frodo isn't sure he can go on anymore in their quest. And Sam not only offers to physically carry Frodo, but reminds him of the reason why they both must carry on. It's like the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad has happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come and when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer. I know now folks in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. That there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. Sam reminds Frodo that the shadow and the darkness are not real, no matter how real they seem. And once Sam and Frodo are finally successful in their quest and narrowly escape the shadow of death, Sam awakes to find himself rescued and restored and in the presence of his friend Gandalf, whom he had believed was dead. And Sam then exclaims with delight, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad? Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? 
great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. A great shadow has departed. A great unreality has been met with reality. And everything sad is going to come untrue. Now that isn't to say that the consequences of rejecting reality aren't real. Or that sin and darkness and death can't seem real. It's not to deny suffering or sadness or pain. Too often the church does just that and calls it the good news. We offer up unhelpful platitudes as a substitute for real hope. We want to deny the darkness rather than confronting it head on. I think about my friends Daniel and Angie who tried for years to have children until the day came where Angie gave birth to stillborn twins. And Angie stopped going to church for a while. And I told Angie that was okay, because she wasn't sure it was. But I kept checking in with Angie in the hopes that she would find her way back. And one day I asked her what was keeping her away, because she'd been back once or twice. She said, everyone at church acts like it didn't happen. But it I am here to promise you that when the God who is real, the word made flesh, steps into our reality, he doesn't deny our reality. He comes to deal with it once and for all. And the way he deals with our reality, our suffering, our pain, is to take it upon himself, to take on flesh, to take on sin, to take on suffering and death and remake reality. Not in a way that denies death, but denies it its power in resurrection. This is why the story of Jesus revealing himself to Thomas after his resurrection is so powerful. Jesus' new reality doesn't come without his scars, but the scars no longer have the power to make him suffer. Their only power is to restore our faith in the one who suffered. It isn't that the sad things never happen. It's that everything sad is going to come untrue. The reality of sin and suffering and death become unreality in the face of the God who is resurrected and real, who is so real, whose love is so real that death cannot hold him. The word that spoke light and made light speaks healing and we are healed, speaks restoration, and there is restoration, speaks forgiveness, and we are forgiven. When this word steps into our reality, he says to the lame man, rise and walk, and the lame man rises and walks. He speaks to Lazarus, dead in his grave, and says, come out, and Lazarus comes out. The word made flesh is such a powerful word that without him even speaking a word, a woman who is unclean touches him. And instead of altering his reality, which is what's supposed to happen, instead of making him unclean, he is so real that he makes her clean. 
That is the power of the sacraments of the church. Christ steps into the waters of baptism and alters the reality of the water. So powerful, so powerfully that the water now alters our reality. Christ offers up bread and wine as his body and blood and so alters their reality that by eating that bread and drinking that wine, our reality is altered. This is what Paul writes to the Galatians about. This fundamental altering of reality. This word marks us with his own name, Jesus Christ. And suddenly, any other identity marker, Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, all of these, all of who we are and what we are is submitted to the one identity that is most real. Jesus Christ, Christian. This word makes us no longer servants of God, but children of God. And all of this is what we mean when we say that God and his gospel are true. We mean that God is real, that God is love, that God is good, that God is beautiful. So when the world comes offering us unreality, we must reject it as such. When the world comes saying, this is true, this is good, this is beauty, don't believe it. When the world comes saying, this is love, this is real, reject it. So long as it is not of God, it is not real. God shapes and defines reality. It is by God that these things are made and defined and realized. It is by the word of God that reality exists at all. He is the real who makes us real, who tells us who we are. He is the word who writes our story. The things that scare me or anger me or make me anxious, they aren't real. They feel real. The same way the shadow feels real when I'm standing in its shade, but the shadow doesn't exist. Suffering feels real, but it isn't real the way God is real. Sadness isn't real the way God is real. Sin and death are not real the way God is real. His reality is the only true reality. His real is the only real. One of my favorite sentences ever written that gets at the heart of all I've been saying is one that we sung after our gospel reading today. A line in verse 3 of joy to the world. The verse begins with an unmaking of our unreality. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. No more. And then comes one of the most beautiful sentences ever written. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. See, sometimes it feels like the curse is found everywhere. Sometimes it feels like the curse is the realest thing there is. 
whether it's a curse as old as the violence between Israel and Palestine, or a curse more recent and more personal to you, an injustice perpetrated against you, or a relationship gone sour, a betrayal by one who ought to have cared for you, a friend, a parent, a spouse, a church. We are not here to pretend that didn't happen. We're not here to tell you that didn't happen. We're not here to preach a gospel that denies your pain and sadness and sin and death. We're not here to preach platitudes to the mothers of stillborn children. We're not here to say that your sickness or suffering don't matter. We are here to proclaim that God is real. That God is more real than anything else that ever existed. We are here to proclaim that his grace and forgiveness, justice and mercy are real. We are here to proclaim that God is real and God is love and so love is real. That by living into and out of that love, we are made real. That the word that was with God and is God is the true and living word, the only word that can tell us what is true and what is real. We are here to proclaim that the light of God is so real that darkness cannot overcome it. That the word of God is so real it makes new realities. And that God's reshaping of reality invites us as he did in the beginning, to join in, in that recreation of things. Invites us to paint and sculpt, to dance and sing, to write poems and stories, to tend gardens and raise children, to form ragtag little communities where Christ is at the center. We are here to spread the word of a new reality by following the word into that reality. A reality in which swords are beaten into plowshares, in which the sick and imprisoned are not alone, in which the hungry are fed and the stranger is welcomed, the widow and the orphan and the immigrant and the outsider are loved and cared for, where we do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. Where we love God with all we have and all we are and love our neighbor we are here today to proclaim Christ as God's first and final word, his truest, realest, best, and most beautiful word, the word who shapes every story and defines all reality. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.